Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, let's get going. Hey, everybody, welcome in. David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. So now we step back into the ring, back into time. Let's get wall-to-wall, treetop tall, with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. What's going on in your world, stud? Oh, Jace, man, same old, same old. You know, beautiful day here today. Got back. It's coming summertime again, Dave, going back into the 80s. I don't think I've ever heard you say it's not a beautiful day. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, it's kind of, it's kind of, a lot of them are pretty here, man. Got to admit it. (laughs) All right. I got to, well, I got to tell you, today's kind of a special day to me. Five years ago, I quit smoking. And so, yeah, five years with no cigarettes. So did you ever smoke like as a younger person, as a kid or anything? No, man, that's something I I was able to avoid. So you didn't, you didn't have time because your dad was making you tote hay bales. uh, Yeah, no kidding, man. (laughs) And dad never smoked either. Right. Uh, So, so, uh, you know, I, I think he might've, he might've done a little more than, uh, then uh, just reprimand us, me and Rob, if he'd have caught us smoking, I believe we'd have got a boot in the butt. So there was no sneaking behind the barn? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, not not for smoking, anyway. Right. <laughs> They'd say we were the greatest of kids uh, in other ways, but uh, yeah. no, we, we never got into the smoking thing. Yeah, and you, you can't wrestle and smoke at the same time. No, not, <laughs> too, not too easily, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen. Uh, so it's a, it's a celebration for me, and uh, uh, man, if it, I, I never I never bother anybody who's smoking because I did it for forty two years. So man, any, what, uh, congratulations, man. That's well, a, that's you. a great feat, man. That's that's really an accomplishment. Yeah, five years is a long time, but a- anyway, I don't uh, I don't hassle anybody who's smoking. It's it's up to them. It's between them and their lungs if they want to make that decision. So best of luck if somebody's out there thinking about it. it and after 10 days, it sure gets easier. So if you can make it to 10 days, you can make it. Hey, Stud, you know, we found out last Studcast how new Studcast were going to begin to change. So almost everything you've been doing for the last couple of years, two years at least, was based upon operating two territories. As of the last Studcast, the Tennessee Territory became history. Jim Barnett and Fred Ward, the new Georgia owners, presented their first Southeastern event. 
So how did you feel about that, Ron, both good and bad, about having been in charge there for almost five years and somebody else is putting on an event? And did you see those events? Oh, well, yes, uh, a couple of them for sure, because I was still there. Obviously, man, I, I was full of emotions, Dave, you know, but uh, but I, perf- I prefer to call them, man, uh, rather than uh, good and bad, call them good and sad, mm. you know, my emotions. Uh, so uh, I felt sad, man, about having to watch five months uh, with five of my former stars and their company at this point called All Star Wrestling ripping apart what many had called the best small territory in wrestling. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and I was also sad to be leaving the Smoky Mountains, one of the most beautiful places, uh, as Harley Race would put it, on God's green earth. You man. got that right. <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, and then I was sad to be leaving uh, so many wonderful faces and fans and friends that, that I was not going to ever forget. Uh, but uh, but then the, let's talk about the good part of it. There, there were some good things, Dave. Uh, being my own boss, obviously, uh, that's uh, that's always a good thing, uh, and uh, that's why I wanted to become a wrestling promoter, so I could become my own boss, and uh, and I was responsible basically for bringing in some of the best wrestlers in the world into one of the smallest territories in the world, and uh, and uh, I felt a whole lot of pride, man, hundreds of nights, man, in those cities and small towns across that part of the country. Uh, there we were in their biggest buildings and. They were packed to the walls, man. There were more people in those buildings than people that lived there had ever seen before, I'm sure. And, uh, boy, getting to hear all those ear-popping explosions, man, <laughs> those crowds just sent chills up my spine, man. I, I, that's unforgettable moments. And uh, then as far as, uh, say, Knoxville itself, uh, I had the opportunity to watch crowds grow from first, Southeastern's first night. I remember it very well. It's just about, uh, you know, uh, the same time of year. Uh, we had a small, half-full, chill Harry Park, Jacobs Building, uh, you know, and we went from that to breaking the all-time attendance record for a sports event in the Knoxville Coliseum, mm. a record that still stands 46 years later, Dave. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> and well said. This studcast is number 324. Can you believe that? You have titled it Gulf Coast Star Showered. So will we still be getting some of the old southeastern Knoxville territory info as well? Yeah, sure we will. You know, I mean, uh, right now, as a matter of fact, let's, let's, let's just jump right on that. I mean, Tony right. Charles and I were still there at this point, And I was going to be, it was going to be Tony's last night. Uh, he's in this event uh, that we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that was coming up in Knoxville, and he was going to be headed home then to Pensacola. Well, we, you know, and I had sent him uh, at the end of June in 1978, uh, after he had his first run in Knoxville, I had sent him down to wrestle in Pensacola. And uh, I had no idea, and I'm sure he didn't either, but it was going to change his life forever. Uh, he had such a beautiful family, man, and they, they instantly fell in love with Pensacola. As soon as they got there, uh, and he purchased a home right on the Gulf, man. And he had been wrestling in several territories across the country and around the world for many years before he came to me. And uh, his family was accustomed, obviously, to moving often, basically from apartment to apartment and from state to state, 
before they arrived in Pensacola. And I had found Tony Charles to be, in my experience working with him, one of the most talented and easy to work with and loyal wrestlers I ever knew, I guess. And I couldn't have been happier for him, man, to find this house and, uh, and them to be so happy. And that first run for him in Pensacola, hmm. it only lasted about seven months in 1978. And it went into the first month of 1979. And that was about the time that Robert and a bunch of that crew started leaving for Memphis, along with Tony, uh, but not Tony's family. Uh, and I remember the conversation with Tony when I asked him if he would be willing to go to Memphis. And, uh, and I remember he talked to his family and he called me back and he said, yeah, Ronnie, he says, I'll be glad to go. But he says, it's the first time ever, though, he goes, my family's refusing to go with me. He said, <laughs> he said they won't <laughs> leave the beach. Ah. <laughs> so at this point uh, in today's studcast, and we're talking about November of 1979, uh, he'd been gone from them for 10 months <laughs> uh, after he went to Memphis. He was gone for 10 months before he actually goes back to Pensacola. Six of those he was going to spend in Memphis, and then he was going to come to Knoxville for four more. And uh, that was such was the case if you were a wrestler, man. Yeah, everybody knows the adage, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Uh, but I had no idea, Ron, that wrestling could be that difficult, especially for a family. But when you put them on Pensacola Beach... It's kind of, it's like a magnet. It's hard to pull him away. I bet he was happy to be going home, though. Well, he was on cloud nine, you know, and <laughs> as he put it, uh, you know, uh, he was headed back to paradise. <laughs> In his English accent, I love to talk to, Char to Tony. He had a great accent. And he, and he says, uh, Ron, it's a, it's a completely different paradise than Tennessee. He goes, uh, but he says, I'm, I'm going back this time and, uh, and when he went back that time, he was destined to become an overnight sensation down there. Man, uh, he was the United States Junior Heavyweight Champion. He basically owned that division. And, wow, he was going to go home this time to really become a big star. Wow. Okay, that's a cool story. Do you have, do you have that second Knoxville card for the new owners? Uh, I guess it would have been on Friday, November 16th of 79, you and Tony were on it. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I do have it, you know, and, and it was just one week before Thanksgiving 1979. And to show how powerful Barnett's influence was, this card was a one-night tournament, and the winner of the tournament was going to get a shot at the NWA champion, Harley Race, on Thanksgiving night. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was difficult to get the champion on any night. But Thanksgiving, really? I mean, wow. that was almost impossible. So the tournament was filled with stars. Uh, and Michael Hayes was on this. Uh, Mike, uh, Mr. Wrestling 2, Sterling Golden, the Hulk, was back. Tony Atlas, uh, Bam Bam Terry Gordy was in that tournament. Ox Baker, superstar Billy Graham. I mean, it was loaded. It had 14 wrestlers in the tournament. And the tournament was going to have 13 matches. So uh, Tony, in the first round, uh, wrestled against David Schultz, and he lost. And, uh, wow, <laughs> I never saw a guy pack so fast, man. He was going home after all those months, you know. And so, uh, you know, then I won my first match uh, against the Angel, Frank Morrell. But I got disqualified in the second round against Ox Baker. 
Uh, Dick Slater actually won the tournament. He was going to be the guy wrestling Harley Race for the NWA championship the following Thursday on Thanksgiving night. Okay, do you have any idea what attendance was for this event? Uh, yeah, you know, I still had connections there, obviously. Uh, Bob Pope, the guy that mentioned uh, we mentioned last last week in the newspaper article I read last episode, uh, he was a front office guy uh, for the new owners, and, uh, and years later he was going to be my partner in both wrestling and hockey. And uh, so Bob told me the crowd was 3,600. That was a big jump from the 2200 in the Coliseum the week before. Mm -hmm. and I was extremely happy for Barnett to see the house jump like that. Uh, we had established Thanksgiving night, thankfully for him, as one of the three best nights of the year. It had total sellouts in the Coliseum for the last three Thanksgiving nights in a row there. And I can't imagine what it would have drawn with a world championship on the Thanksgiving card. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I expected that Thanksgiving card next week uh, with the world champion on it uh, to be a spectacular crowd, not, not only in Tennessee, mm -hmm. but uh, it was going to do good because we were going to be running on that Thanksgiving night down there in Mobile, too. Wow. Speaking of Southeastern Gulf Coast, let's go down there now and let's find out just how the Southeastern Gulf Coast territory was going to be maybe showered with stars. Yeah, you know, and, and that's and we're going to be this big portion of the rest of this show is going to be pretty amazing in what was going on down there. So the shower of incoming stars began, man, basically two stud casts ago on number 322 uh, with the arrival of Tor Tanaka down there. And then in the last stud cast, uh, Stud Coast fans uh, found out uh, not only why Tanaka had arrived there, but they also found out why Kevin Sullivan had been there for the last six weeks. So uh, also in the last stud cast, for the first time ever, fans got to see two matches from Tennessee that explained everything about why Kevin went down there and how Tor Tanaka ended up down there. So also in the last uh, cast, uh, three more stars arrived. We had a new tag team and a new manager down there. Fans were familiar with one of the three, the Mongolian Stomper, and uh, he had made quite an impression on fans since his first match ever in the Gulf Coast. And everywhere he ever went, he made an impression right away. And on September 6, 1978, with his then-manager, Gorgeous George Jr., he went down there the first time he ever went in September of 1978. So it wasn't, uh, you know, just what happened in the ring that shocked fans about the stomper. It was kind of this fixation, man, on the, on the TV audience, especially the one <laughs> in the Dothan TV. I don't know why. <laughs> he never did that in Knoxville. But, wow, he got into just attacking the fans, <laughs> you know, every chance he got down there. So <laughs> so that TV audience war he was having every week <laughs> began again in the last studcast when the Stomper arrived for the first show down there again with his new partner, who was his son. And uh, they were a tag team called the Mongolians. They had a new manager, the great Mephisto. The great Mephisto was a legend. He's a, le a legend, man, a guy named Frankie Kane. Hmm. And so it's a great way to start this uh, shower star down there in that area. <laughs> they had these four new stars in the last two weeks. Okay, cool. So there was certainly no exaggeration in calling those four guys stars. 
one of wrestling's premier heels, the Mongolian Stomper, plus three new heels, Tora Tanaka, another great one, absolutely, of course, the Stomper's son, and a legend in the sport, Frankie Kane, the great Mephisto. All right, Ron, I would call that a storm, maybe rather than a shower of new heels. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing what was about to happen down there. And the shower was just getting started down there, Dave. Actually, you know, there because there's going to be three more stars coming down there in this stud cast, and two of those had been on the Gulf Coast before, and a monstrous one was going down there that was brand new to the Gulf Coast, never been seen down there, mm-hmm. and he is going to scare the hell out of everybody. <laughs> All right, I have an idea on that one, but I'm not so sure yet. Are you serious? Okay, three more stars. Added in this stud cast to those four you just talked about. Okay, who were they? You want to reveal that? Yeah, man. So the title for this stud cast, you know, the Gulf Coast, the, you know, a, a showered, a, you know, a star showered, man, uh, is, uh, is is exactly what it is, man, and what was really happening. Uh, the next one uh, came to the southeastern Gulf Coast for the first time. This next star that, and we've got three more that we're going to introduce. This guy came there down to the Gulf Coast for the first time on November 17th, 1978. Uh, he started there as a baby face. Uh, he got over great. He left in March of 1979, which, uh, you know, was just uh, about four months later after being hurt by Rip Tyler and Eddie Sullivan. And he went to Memphis with Robert and many of the other of those Gulf Coast stars in 1979. Uh, he was a babyface that had been gone from the Gulf Coast for nine months, uh, and there was absolutely nobody down there that was aware of where he'd even been, much less what he had become. And so during that nine months, he had returned to Knoxville, and for the first time in his 11-year uh, career, uh, he turned heel. And he did it on my father in the match there on July 6, 1979. So I'm talking about Jimmy Golden. Man. So, you know, he's one of those guys that are going in there again. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the next star had also been in the Gulf Coast area before. And he made his debut down there uh, on December 3rd, 1978. He went in as a heel. And uh, five weeks later, he turned babyface on January 11th, 1979. He joined Robert and Jimmy against a three-man team of Don Carson, the assassin, and Billy Spears. And uh, he remained a babyface until he left the territory on April 18, 1979. And he, too, left and went to Knoxville. And on April 27, 1979, again, as a heel there, as he had been in Tennessee uh, for most of his career. So he went down there as a heel, but he had been a babyface. And he partnered with Jimmy Golden against me and Rob as soon as he got there. I'm talking about Norvell Austin. So both Jimmy and Norvell wrestled their last match in Knoxville on November 2nd, 1979, which is just two stud casts to go. And both of them wrestled there as heels. So the last time either Jimmy or Norvell was seen in the southeastern Gulf Coast, they were both top babyfaces. So again, uh, no one down on the Gulf Coast was aware of where they'd gone. And more importantly, they had no idea of what they had become when they went there. Wow. All right. So it's getting really interesting, Ryan. I see a, 
a lot of directions that this could be headed. I can't wait to hear who this last star you are introducing today is going to be. Well, man, the, you know, the last star in this studcast had, had never been, like, like I said earlier, to the Gulf Coast at all. He had never wrestled down there at all in his career. Uh, and he had not even wrestled for Southeastern up in Knoxville for years. And he had always been a baby face for us, in spite of the way he looked, you know. And uh, when we got in touch with him, Rob and I had a conversation with him on the phone, and he found out what we wanted him to do and where we wanted him to come to do it. He lit up like a Christmas tree, man. And uh, he was one of the most <laughs> impressive workers in the business. And he would do things to build territories that nobody else would do. I mean, he 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 committed himself to not just getting him over, but to getting the sport over. Uh, and he had a great deal to do with our success in Tennessee. Man, a tremendous. Uh, he was a tremendous part of it. Mm. And we knew if we got him down on the Gulf Coast, he would first of all fall in love with Pensacola. And then he was going to help us make a fantastic success out of the other Southeastern, the one on the Gulf Coast. All right. So you're going to keep holding this over my head and making me guess or, or what? So who, No, man, I guess. Who, who was it? Who was it? <laughs> you know, well, we almost broke his neck. He almost broke his neck for us. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. And he cut his arm with us with an ax. Oh, my God. A yeah. blood oath in, in Knoxville. Uh, it was the Canadian lumberjack, Joel Duke. Definitely, two stories I definitely remember from the past. So, okay, l- uh, let me let me make sure on this. I'm getting this straight on this card for Mobile and the rest of the territory. You're adding Jimmy Golden, Norvell Austin, Joe LaDuke, Tora Tanaka, the Mongolian tag team, and their manager, the great Mephisto Frankie Kane. You're adding that to Bob Armstrong, Robert Fuller, Jerry Stubbs, and a ton more. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, <laughs> wow. I mean, wow, that territory was showered. He's being showered in stars, man. Uh, seven new stars in three weeks. That's unbelievable. And uh, so that's why I call it, you know, basically uh, this is a star shower down there, man. Uh, we I never put that many new great guys into a territory ever. Wow. And, and I'm curious if you felt like you outkicked your coverage on that, because that's a lot of stars and a lot of paychecks that have to be handed out at the end of the night. All right. I'd say it was a perfect title for this one, uh, The Showering of the Stars. So part one of this stud cast has been absolutely amazing. We're going to take a break. And when we come back after the break, we're going to hear the whole card for the second week of November 1979 when this Studcast continues. Hey, Studcast fans, it's official. What a unique gift for a wrestling fan in your life for the first time. The classic black and blue Studcast t-shirts are all on sale. Only $15.99 each, all sizes, with free shipping. Get yours now at tnstud.com. tnstud.com. Click Stud Store. That's a savings of 8 to $10 per shirt. Better get them before they're all gone. There will never be any more of this shirt sold again. It's one of a kind. Go to tnstud.com, click stud store, and watch the faces light up on Christmas Day. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in. 
after the way this stud cast has started, I can hardly wait to hear the card for Mobile, Alabama, Wednesday, November 14th, 1979, with all of these new stars added to us, added to it. So lay it out for us, stud. Okay, I'm not going to I'm not going to hang you up here, man. So uh, so it opened with two babyface matches. Uh, we had the returning Norvell Austin against Roy Lee Welch. Uh, obviously, uh, Jimmy Golden and Norvell had left there as babyfaces, and that's what they went back as babyfaces, or so it seemed. I would put it that way. And then Jimmy was facing off in the second match against the very popular wrestling pro Leon Baxter. Two baby face matches back to back. Then we had a hometown favorite, Ricky Fields, uh, was back after he had a week before. He got himself a win. Uh, he's back this time. And uh, wow, I guess he's going to be real sad about the fact he, he came on the wrong week because he ended up wrestling the Canadian lumberjack, Joel Duke, in his mobile debut, man. So, fourth match was uh, one chosen by Kevin Sullivan. Uh, it's called a Boston Street Fight. It was going to be him against Tor Tanaka. Then Robert Fuller and Jerry Stubbs, the Southeastern Tag Champions, after beating the Assassin team in the loser lead match the week before, they were defending their belts against the new Mongolians managed by the great Mephisto. The main event was for the Southeastern Championship. Uh, the winner got the belt, and the loser got to leave Southeastern. That was his prize. <laughs> so uh, champion Bob Armstrong was against the former champion, Eddie Mansfield. That's a really good card. So every match could be, could be seriously a main event with all these new wrestlers. The TV promoting this card had to be one of the best ever. So you want to set that up for us? Yeah, man. Uh, it was rating period again. Uh, you know, uh, Charlie Platt opened it up. Uh, we had a t uh, championship match the week before. He opened this one up, saying we got another championship match on this one. It's going to be a Southeastern Tag ch Championship match on TV. Then Kevin Sullivan, uh, who had his fist taped, uh, joined Charlie at the set, and uh, they watched a video from a different city than usual. We we had taken a match a video of a match between Sullivan and Tanaka in Montgomery, Alabama, to show. So we didn't have to show everything out of Mobile, and it always helped those towns when we could use some of those videos from these other towns. Mm -hmm. So it was five days earlier when this match took place between Kevin and Tanaka, and in the match, Kevin was bleeding because Tanaka just uh, chopped him in the in the, in the face uh, so many times that, you know, uh, Tanaka's hated fists were, they were hard, man, and... Uh, and the match was, you know, finally stopped uh, between the two of them. They were both disqualified. And uh, Charlie asked Kevin, you know, uh, why why do you have your fist tape? <laughs> Obviously, no. <laughs> so Kevin explained that after that match that uh, they, they just watched on video, he said he had asked the Southeastern officials, Don Curtis uh, specifically, if he could have a Boston street fight against Tanaka. Uh, basically, he said to honor his home city of Boston, right? And, uh, and so, you know, then he kind of explained a little bit of how that worked to Charlie. He said, you know, that type of match was going to allow him to tape his fist. And he said Tanaka could tape his fist too, but he says, I don't think he needs to. He's got hands of stone. Tanaka does. You know, he don't <laughs> need to tape his fist, basically. <laughs> and he said the match was a no disqualification match. And it ended when one man was able to throw the other one 
over the top rope and wow. on the concrete. So uh, Charlie asked the logical question because uh, where did that idea come from, <laughs> right? <laughs> so Kevin told him, you know, he said, well, it came from Boston, the Boston Tea Party in Boston Harbor in 1773, Charlie. He goes, well, you know, and then he says, back in those days, you remember the story? Young Americans, they were being uh, unduly taxed, and they, they boarded the ship in uh, the harbor, and they, they threw all these huge test chests full of tea overboard. That's a protest, right? And he said, uh, he said, so I'm going to throw a big, huge chest of tea overboard too. And I'm talking about one fat jab, and they tore it to knock a, just like his ancestors. <laughs> My ancestors had done in 1773. Okay. Uh, so I learned something new every week, Stud. I never heard of that kind of match before. Well, I'd never heard of it either until Kevin told me about it and not <laughs> Mm-hmm. When he was still there, you know, and but we never had opportunity to use it. But Rob did. Rob heard about it, and Rob, Rob had the he threw it in there right away. And uh, so Rob had the first one of these that we'd ever had in the Gulf Coast Territory in the second week of November, nineteen seventy-nine. And on that note, about being the person who really set up all the matches. So did how often did a wrestler? like Kevin, come to you and say, hey, I've got an idea for a type of match. Let's see if you'll put this in the program. Oh, man, a lot more than you would think. You know, uh, guys all had, and especially they all had matches that, that they, and they, some of them were crazy. It was like, wow, mm-hmm. we can't do that, man. We can't do that. You know, but, uh, you know, Kevin happened to break. This was a pretty good idea, and it was a pretty good concept, and, uh, and he had a great way of promoting it. So, uh, you know, it worked out good to put that one on there. And uh, so uh, Kevin's, uh, you know, uh, so Kevin's opponent in the upcoming Boston Street Fight tour, Tanaka, uh, uh, Kevin uh, stayed at the set with Charlie uh, to watch and watch and commentate because <laughs> the first match was with, guess who, Tor Tanaka. <laughs> you know, so Tanaka, you know, uh, he was as vicious as always. And, and at the very end of this uh, short match, he had his opponent. In the Japanese version of a sleeper hole, but he refused to let him go. So Rob, you know, I wasn't there. So Rob told me some things about it. Kevin, uh, I mean, uh, Charlie told me some. Even Bob told me some things about this TV. But Rob said that as soon as Tanaka refused to let the the, the hole go, he said Kevin hit the ring, man, and uh, and he said, and then he said Tanaka turned around and, and didn't know he was coming, turned around and. And didn't see him till he was right there. And then he said he hit Tanaka between the eyes of one of those tape fists. And he said, not only, man, Ron, did it knock him down. He said, it split him wide open. So, uh. and so Rob said, he said, but Kevin didn't stay for long. <laughs> Before Tanaka got up, he left the ring and he went to the dressing room. <laughs> so he had got in his <laughs> shot, man. I guess he was happy. So then Rob said right after the match, Tanaka went for an interview, you know, uh, and uh, he said, boy, he was he was mad, Rod, because, you know, he said, uh, you know how he always talked in the broken English, you know, he managed to speak enough English that he could kind of do his own interviews. He said, he was so mad, he said, he rolled out the whole interview in Japanese. He never said a <laughs> word in English. And he said, it had to be some curse words in it, too. <laughs> 
said, if anybody could speak Japanese, he said, that, he said it was horrible. I don't know. None of us had any idea what he said, but he sure was mad. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so a cultural experience on the show. Okay, and blood in the first match. I said this was going to be a great TV show, so uh, so far, so good. All right, who was next? Well, Charlie said the studio wasn't prepared for the next one, man, and and he and he said, Ron, and neither was I, you know, because uh, Charlie had never seen Canadian lumberjack Joe LeDuc. He had no idea what LeDuc looked like, uh, and then he said, you know, and here came LeDuc uh, out of the dress room. Uh, and LeDuc was 320 pounds of just plain nasty, man. I mean, wow, he was he was horrible, man. He terrible. It was it was a nightmare to go in the <laughs> ring with him. And uh, so and there he was. He was wearing his usual checkered plaid print lumberjack shirt, had his cut off jeans, and he was carrying his real as shiny sharp as could be double blade lumberjack axe, man, <laughs> with it. To the ring, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and Charlie said, Charlie said, Ron, not only was I silent, he goes, so was the studio. <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, you could have heard a pin drop. He said, they're looking at him like, wow, what the heck? So it didn't take long for, man, for him to make a statement of his own, man. So he, Charlie told me later, he said, uh, he said, Ron, he said, he left a poor jobber crying. <laughs> in the oh ring, God. laying in the ring, and he was crying after that bear hug. Put a bear hug on him, left wow. him crying. <laughs> so, wow! Uh, what a what a great introduction for Joel Duke. Yeah, that guy and the Mongolian stomper always scared me. All right, so how about the personality profile? Set that one up for us. Well, speaking of the devil, you know, uh, <laughs> he was coming out next for the profile, and. Uh, he had his partner and his manager, and as always, boy, the stomper was the first one out of the dressing room door, and you know where he headed, man, straight for the bleachers and the fans, man, and obviously it was pandemonium time, and, uh, you know, then the great <laughs> Mephisto and the stomper's son, they just went straight to the set with Charlie over there by the bleachers, and, uh, you know, but uh, by the time uh, they got there, uh, stomper had practically cleared the studio, man, and then he went over to the set with the two of them. And then nobody wanted to sit. You know how the bleachers sat right next to the profile set? Nobody wanted to sit on those bleachers <laughs> next to where uh, Charlie and the Mongols were, right? <laughs> so the other set of bleachers was so packed, the fans started to come back in. They all tried to get on one set. And then the Charlie said, I thought it was going to collapse, man. The bleachers was going to collapse. <laughs> and, said, and then they said, those people that couldn't sit on the bleachers, he said, they lined up along the wall on the far side of the ring, way away from the profile set. So, Joel Stomper had just created pandemonium again, and I'm sure he really enjoyed that. <laughs> great Mephisto, he was a phenomenal talker, man. Had a, had a great Arabic accent. And he explained the power of his team to Charlie. And uh, as Charlie watched, they watched the video of their first match the week before. Uh, in which they were extremely impressive, man. And, uh, wow, you know, Charlie couldn't say very much, man. Uh, you know, they, he, they, he had a good team. Mephisto had himself a killer team. And uh, so uh, then he explained his plan for the Mongolian's future. You know, and so Charlie, uh, Charlie didn't have to do much talking. Rob says in this, uh, you know, so he said he started talking about 
He said, first, we're going to win the Southeastern titles, and we're going to do that next week. Mm. <laughs> oh. Because we're wrestling those guys, uh, you know, and uh, we're going to, so we're going to win that belt next week. And he goes, then the plan is we're going to win the United States Tag Championship in the next six months. And then he says, uh, finally, uh, we're going to win the World Tag Team Championship within the year. Ah. And he said, then the plans are we're going to return to Saudi Arabia. We're going to defend the belts there and only there for the next five years to, oh. they, in order to beat us. You're going to have to come to Saudi Arabia and beat us in in, in that country. And then, then he says, uh, we're going to permanently retire undefeated forever. <laughs> well, there's nothing like a plan. That sounded pretty ambitious to me. So especially the undefeated forever line. He definitely had one of the biggest names in wrestling with him, the Mongolian stopper. And, and I guess we'll find out soon about his son's ability because they were in the next week or so, they were going to be lining up against the tag team champions for the belts. All right. So who was up next, Ron? Those tag team champions you just mentioned, man, uh, Rob, Rob and Jerry Stubbs. Oh yeah. Uh, with their belts. And before they went to the ring, they went to the set with Charlie uh, to a standing ovation from the studio audience. They were really over men and they were a great team. And uh, then they they watched their recent championship and loser leave victory over the very powerful assassin team. They had only been beat about one time in their last run there, and uh, so they went into the ring, man, with a rare for a rare defense of their belts on TV. It didn't happen very often. Obviously, that was due to it being rating period time, and uh, they always compiled those ratings. November was one of those months that they were taking those ratings. So they were defending against two pretty tough wrestlers. Uh, they had Rock Hunter in there, and they had Tom Sheff, both guys that had been in the territory for about four or six weeks. And uh, But uh, they were going to be ending their run yeah, because we're, we're overloaded with talent at this point. Uh, some guys got to go, and these guys are, uh, you know, they're not the quality of what guys that were coming. So this was going to be their last match for Southeastern. And uh, due to the influx of these stars, almost every spot available in the crew was now filled with some of the best best wrestlers in the world. So Bob Armstrong told me uh, Rob and Jerry looked like champions, man. Uh, but he said they had to deal with, <laughs> he says, yeah, but they had to deal with a real strange, strange little uh, thing that happened to him. He said they had to deal with three sets of eyes focused on them that they didn't expect. And, I said, well, what are you talking about, Bob? And he goes, he said, the great Mephisto. He says, you know how he was, he was a master manager <laughs> and known around the world for getting into the heads of his opponents. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, in this case, he said, uh, he, he brought his, he brought his, uh, two, two guy, two men with him. And, uh, and they, they, they went right out and stood within probably a few feet of the ring. Cause it was a small studio. And they watched the match between uh, this, TV, this TV championship match with Rob and Jerry hmm. from right there practically at ringside. And he said a couple of times, he goes, uh, Mephisto even got him huddled up. And he said, you couldn't tell what he was telling them. But, uh, you know, it's something that was going on there. So uh, Bob said Rob and Jerry were obviously distracted. But he says, well, it didn't, didn't really uh, affect them much. He said they had a great convincing win man so and then he said as soon as uh, 
They won the match. He said Mephisto and his Mongolians, they returned to the dressing room. There wasn't an incident. They didn't, he just wanted to get out and, uh, and uh, play with their heads a little bit. Wow. Okay. So Mephisto was playing some very interesting head games, as you said, uh, during that match. So how about the last match on this TV show? Well, the new Southeastern champion, Bob Armstrong, uh, he had won the title the week before from Eddie Sullivan. And the studio exploded, man, when he came out of the dressing room and uh, went to the ring wearing his belt. And uh, Eddie Sullivan uh, joined Charlie. Uh, Eddie Sullivan was very upset that Don Curtis, the Southeastern Commissioner, had forced him. He, the way he put it to Charlie, he made me sign a loser-leave contract. If I didn't win the Southeastern belt from Bob Armstrong, I had to leave. And, uh, and he said, and, and, and I've got to wrestle him uh, several times, chances, several chances, but if I don't win, I'm gone. So. <laughs> <laughs> and that basically said everything about Mansfield's confidence that he could beat Bob Armstrong. He <laughs> knew he was probably, he just said, well, he just threw me out of the territory. So, so Bob tore the studio up and in the match as usual, and he left everybody standing and he won with his sleeper hole. All right. So this has been exactly what I expected. One of the best TV shows ever. Well, it wasn't over, Dave. You know, uh, <laughs> there were two wrestlers on this TV or at this TV that were not on it, right? And so Charlie had a, about a minute left at the end of the show, and uh, and he introduced both of them, and he brought them out to the end of the show. And that those two guys were Jimmy Golden and Norville Austin. Both of them were big baby faces before they left the Gulf Coast. And as soon as they came out, they got a huge hand from the TV audience. They roared. This was great. They were glad to see them. And, uh, and they probably got at least a smile from many of those that were watching at home, like, look, Jimmy Golden and Norville Austin are back. So they said they were happy to be back. Nice things about the fans. that that then they were going to be on all the upcoming cards the next week, and they were going to be eager to say hello to the – so some of the greatest fans in wrestling history right down here on the Gulf Coast. Hmm. All right. So all of the Gulf Coast fans had no idea what had happened in Tennessee since these two had left. So I don't know exactly what you and your brother had in mind for these two the next week, but it probably wasn't good. So what happened in the buildings the next week? Well, Rob said in Mobile, uh, you know, uh, obviously, uh, the same card was in the three major cities. Rob said in Mobile, Roy Lee Welch uh, got a round of applause when he was introduced in the first match. But he said Norville Austin got a tremendous welcome back from the crowd. He said it was crazy, man. They, they remembered him. They loved him. He said uh, both those guys shook hands. He said they had a clean match until the very end. And he said Norville uh, at the very end was forced to Pull Roy's trunks uh, to win the match. Pulled his trunks up, and uh, he got uh, Roy counted out. And Rob said, you know, the crowd lost a little bit of enthusiasm for him at, uh, at you know, at the end of that match. But uh, it wasn't the – he said, you know, that that did, didn't really affect how they felt about him. He said, then the very popular wrestling pro, Leon Baxter, uh, got introduced in the next match first, and he received a huge hand, as always. Yep. 
But uh, Rob said, but not nearly as strong as the reaction from the crowd for Jimmy Golden. And he said, they too. They, they, he said, uh, Leon Baxter and Jimmy, he said they had a very clean wrestling match. Uh, both of them said shook hands several times during the match. And the crowd really loved it. They, they applauded him. For, cool. uh, and uh, both those guys were great wrestlers. So I can imagine the match was really, really good. Yeah. But uh, Rob said uh, late in the match, the, the pro uh, tried to he shot Golden in the ropes. He tried to leapfrog him. And uh, when he came down, he kind of landed awkwardly on his leg and he hurt his knee. Ooh. And, uh, and he couldn't get up, you know. Uh, so the referee asked Golden if he wanted to take the victory or just call the match a draw, you know. So, <laughs> so Jimmy told Rob, said Jimmy told him, Go get the microphone and ask me that question again. <laughs> so the referee did as he asked. He went over and he got the microphone and he brought it back to where Jimmy was. Uh, now the pro's still laying on the mat there. And, uh, you know, he's in pain. And uh, so Jimmy, uh, so the referee says, okay, do you ask him the same question? That, Would you like to take the victory here or you want to just call this match a draw? Mm-hmm. And uh, so Jimmy. Jimmy said, Jim, I said, Jimmy took the mic and he says, I don't want either of them. He goes, uh, I'm going to make him give up. Uh-oh. <laughs> and he started stomping the pro's leg, man. And then he put him in a very painful single leg crab, which is a wow. very, very painful hold. And especially if you've got a bad leg already. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously it was just causing more pain to pro's leg until the pro gave up. And Rob said the building men went from cheering Jimmy to booing him. <laughs> it was like, wait a minute here. <laughs> so, so Bob, uh, you know, Rob told me uh, that about the next match. He said about Ricky Fields and the Joe LaDuke match. And they were next. And uh, he said, uh, Ricky, you know, being a hometown boy, hadn't been there for quite a while. You know, he said he got a big hand from the crowd. And he said, but Bob said, you know, he says, uh, <laughs> Bob said, Joe LaDuke uh, got no reaction at all, man. He goes, it was dead silence, uh, you know, as everyone, you know, was probably amazed. He said, well, they had to be amazed at what they were seeing there. You know, Joe went and he took his axe with him. He took all the same stuff as he had done on TV. And he said, Joe LaDuke, Ron, just destroyed poor Ricky Fields, man. In a matter of minutes, man, put a bear hug on him and, Said it was a it was a bad deal, man. So, uh, so next then was the Boston Street Fight, and uh, so Kevin Sullivan was against Tor Tanaka, and Tanaka's head was still taped up from four days earlier, where Kevin popped him on the TV with a with his taped fist, and uh, so uh, you know Kevin. Uh, so both men were bleeding in this match. They both ended up bleeding again, and Tanaka finally won. And uh, he threw Sullivan over the top rope uh, on, onto the concrete, but he didn't stop there. You know, he got his hand raised in the ring, but then he went out on the floor and he attacked Kevin. Uh, you know, picked him up, ran him into the ring post. I mean, uh, he was going to do a job on him after he had already won the match. So Bob said, you know, well, I was getting there watching Ron. He goes, so I went down to ringside and said, don't, don't try to stop Tanaka. You know, and he said, uh, while I'm, Dealing with Tanaka, he, go, he says, Eddie Mansfield sneaked down behind me and hit me from behind, uh, threw me up into the ring, had him ring the bell for the title match and the loser lead, you know, and he says uh, he, he, he really uh, took advantage of me for a few minutes there. And then uh, 
So he said, uh, Royley Welch went down and helped Sullivan out of there, and Tanaka went on back to the dressing room, and he said uh, after Mansfield had uh, taken over on him and, uh, and gave, kept him down for a few minutes, he said Bob made his comeback, and he said, uh, you know, and, uh, so uh, Rob uh, you know, was telling me about it. He said he, that building went nuts when Bob started making the comeback on Mansfield. And, uh, <laughs> he said, uh, and boy, he put the sleeper hold on him, and he said that was the end of Eddie Mansfield, a long southeastern coast run. Eddie Mansfield probably been there longer than any heel. He was there during 78, Derek Gurren did 79. You know, he'd been there a long time. And uh, it was only two days before his last match ever in Southeastern. So the last match was for the Southeastern Tag Championship. Uh, Robin Stubbs versus the Mongolians, managed by the great Mephisto. And uh, Bob told me about this one, too. And he said, uh, you know, Robin Stubbs were holding their own. And, uh, and he says, uh, then toward the end of the match, Stubbs and one of the Mongols ended out on the, out on the floor, fighting out on the floor. And the other Mongol was with Rob in the ring, and Rob shot the Mongol into the referee. And the uh, referee went out of the ring onto the floor, and he said, uh, Rob covered the Mongol. And uh, no referee there, so Mephisto came in the ring. First time he had been there, uh, first time he had actually come into the ring, and he stomped Rob off, Bob said, and he put the Mongol over on top of him. And uh, so uh, he said, uh, <clears throat> uh, Rob then started fighting his way up, uh, and uh, he, he tore into Mephisto, and uh, Bob said, man, it was Bedlam in the building at that point. And then he said, uh, Golden and Austin, all of a sudden arrived at the ring. And he said, uh, both of them went in the ring, and he said the crowd was kind of cheering. You know, like, wow, yeah, this is great. They're going to get some help. But they went, both of them went straight to Rob. Hmm. And he just started working on him, man. Uh, they stomped him all around. And uh, Bob said the crowd went from half cheering to total silence. And I'm like, what is going on here, man? And, uh, so they, you know, they couldn't figure it, probably trying to figure out what, what's going on here and why are they doing this, man? So uh, Golden Pile Drive Rob and uh, Norvell held his legs and drove his head and, and you know, made the pile, the pile driver even more impactful. And then they put the Mongol on top of him and, uh, and they tried to leave the ring. But <laughs> they couldn't manage to get uh, only to the apron, man. And, uh, and I'm sure you have a good idea of why, man. <laughs> it was too late to leave. <laughs> so, so the referee called back in the ring and he counted Rob out. And then all hell broke loose, Bob said. He said, uh, he said Ron, he said, I had not seen a riot like this one <laughs> since the first night that we opened Mobile in 1978 and the crowd went after you. He said it was unbelievable. He said, I went, Kevin went, Roy went, Ricky Fields went. All of us went to the ring. We tried <laughs> to get the guys out. He goes, uh, he goes, I don't know. He goes, he said, I have no idea how we all made it back to the dressing room alive. Because <laughs> it was just crazy. Wow. I was about to say, what a great night of matches that was until the last one. So why did it always seem like Mobile? was one of the most dangerous cities in the world, especially when it came to wrestling and wrestling riots. Because it truly was. 
<laughs> okay. You just said the reason. Boom. I mean, it was the most dangerous city I ever wrestled in. I mean, in all the world, every place I went, I never saw any city like Mobile. Wow. And, uh, and, and my father warned me. The first time we ran Mobile in 1978, he talked to me on the phone. He says, where are you at tonight? I said, mm-hmm. we're opening Mobile. And he goes, watch your back. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That was it, and I never forgot that. <laughs> so mm. then that that night, I got arrested and taken to jail. <laughs> so I mean, wow, <laughs> Mobile was a terror to be in. Wow. Okay. How about attendances in all three of the major cities that week? Montgomery was up from thirty six hundred to thirty eight hundred, and Mobile. Went from 5,000 the week before, which was basically a sellout of Expo Hall. But this time, somehow they managed to get 5,300 in there. Uh, Dothan went from 4,500 to 5,000. It was wall to wall. I mean, you get 5,000 in that big farm center, uh, and it was packed. And so the combined gross attendance for the three cities went from 13,100 the week before to 14,100 uh, and this week. And the next week, we're going to have Thanksgiving. So it was really looking good. What a stud cast, Ron. And can you believe it? We are going to have time for a learning tree question today. All right. If you're ready, here it comes. It comes from a gentleman named Barry Frost, St. Louis, Missouri. And he says, I saw you wrestle here many times and love your stud cast. It seems like you were about the last one left in Knoxville after you sold your Southeastern company there. How did that make you feel? And did you ever think that you could be that successful again somewhere else? <laughs> so that's a good question, man. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, I was, uh, I was, you're right. I was the very last one left in Knoxville, Barry, as a matter of fact, uh, after Tony <laughs> Charles lost and he headed home as quickly as he could to be, to get back home in Pensacola. Uh, and it was one of the saddest experiences in my life, man, uh, this whole deal with uh, Knoxville. And I figured I was always going to have a home somewhere in East Tennessee, maybe in the Smoky Mountains and maybe uh, one down on the Gulf Coast as well, if, if I could make both of those successful. That was my plans. And, uh, and I didn't have aspirations, I got to say, uh, Barry, uh, of being any more successful than that. I mean, wow, that would that would have been uh, tremendous. And uh, so what more could I have wanted? You know, the, they were both gorgeous places to live. If I had a house in the mountains and a house on the Gulf, Wow, you can't get much better than that. And uh, and I would have had a pretty good income and uh, probably uh, a good retirement, you know. So uh, so you ask if I ever felt I could be as successful again somewhere else as I was in Knoxville. I think it was one of the questions. Uh, I not only believe that, uh, but I was banking on it, man. Uh, mm-hmm. And in this studcast, we, we already uh, – we were already drawing as many or more fans each week down there in a much smaller city like Mobile mm-hmm. than they were drawing in Miami, Tampa, Orlando, or Jacksonville in the state of Florida. Wow. So, you know, uh, my Mobile was a tremendous wrestling down. 
So uh, I guess, uh, Barry, my mistake had been to, to as my dad would say, uh, uh, you, you know, boy, you took your eye off the ball <laughs> and, and you let, and, you know, and, and, I, and I let my employees uh, jerk the, ring out, the rug out from under me. I can just hear my old man explaining all this, you know, and, and, and it cost me dearly. And, and I'd learned a valuable lesson in Tennessee, man, the hard way. And, and I was never going to make that mistake again. That was never going to happen like that again. So uh, thanks you very much, uh, Mr. Frost, uh, for your question. And, uh, and the beautiful thing about what happened to me in 1979 was the good Lord saw fit, man, six years later, to allow me to come back and to that same East Tennessee and do it all over again. <laughs> That's cool. All right, great answers to that question, Stud. So how about next week? Where do we ride next week in the next Studcast? In the next one, I'm going to be wrestling uh, in my last Knoxville Coliseum match uh, in the state of Tennessee for a long time. Uh, so, and, and I'm going to be on Thanksgiving night, uh, which I, I had made a tradition of there, and I was going to be wrestling against someone that I'd help get started himself in the business. And I'm talking about Terry Bolia or Sterling Golan or Hulk Hogan or whatever name all rolled into one, you know, and uh, we would uh, become a, you know, and, and this guy Hogan is going to become one of the most famous wrestlers of all time. Mm -hmm. So uh, in this stud guest, uh, we, we set up the future of the Gulf coast territory. We talked about all these stars that were pumped in there at one time, basically. And the angles that we worked in Expo Hall that night, you know, uh, with Jimmy Golden and Norvell Austin, uh, you know, uh, the guys that had been baby faces turned heel the first night. <laughs> and uh, it was going to produce the first Thanksgiving night crowd a week later that's going to become legend, man. Uh, so, uh, uh, then on that uh, same Thanksgiving night, uh, with the Knoxville fans 500 miles in the north watching the, watching the wrestling, the southeastern Gulf Coast stars that had gathered in this studcast, uh, they're in Mobile, uh, or this time next week not going to be in that little expo hall. They're going to be in that 10,000-seat uh, big main arena in Mobile. Wow. And, uh, we're going to draw twice as many fans in Mobile as they do in Knoxville. Wow. I can feel big things are going to happen in the Southeastern Gulf Coast Territory, Stud. You can kind of feel it creeping in. Uh, not like a bad pair of shorts, though. All right. So what just happened in Mobile will lead to the continuation of what was started in Tennessee. Gulf Coast TV shows will become dynamic filled with angles and videos from another territory that will become red hot again. So Studcast have always been great, but I think they're going to get even better if that's possible. Hey, folks, you know how to find Ryan on Facebook. Go to Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. Like him, follow him there, and automatically become friends with the living legend. Same thing on Twitter, now known as X. Find him on Twitter or X at Ron Fuller Welch and follow him there as well. Exactly the same thing as Facebook. Check out his fantastic website, tnstud.com. This studcast will be there with every studcast ever done. Shop the stud store where you can get 
43 Super Studcast on sale t-shirts, four different 8x10 photos, and the thrilling lion novel called Brutus. You can get your personally autographed copy there as well. Subscribe now at YouTube Southeastern Rewind. Get the best in old school wrestling. Find 360 videos. That'll keep you busy for a little while. The last 101 studcaster there too. 52 stud stories. 81 short rides with the stud. 10 ask the stud question and answer shows. All available now exclusively on YouTube Southeastern Rewind. On YouTube in the search bar, put in Southeastern Rewind. It's the first one that comes up. It's the best deal in old school wrestling. All right, stud, it's all you, brother. Any last words? Well, yeah. I mean, I, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening. And uh, wow, Dave, we're in some pretty difficult times in this country. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, maybe as difficult as I can ever remember. And, uh, mm. you know, uh, I'd like to, if I have anything uh, that I would like to pass along, I would hope that we'd all be considerate of others during this time frame and may God bless us all. Well said, Stud. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at David Summers Productions at gmail.com. This Studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.